It is good to be here. This is my last time. Uh, we're from Greenville, South Carolina, and uh, been living in the South all of my life. Born in North Carolina, moved 135 miles a little farther south uh, west, and that's, that's where I want to die. I love where I live, love being there. Uh, we do have a ministry. You can find us at uh, rickthomas.net if you're interested. We focus on sanctification, uh, helping Christians to be better Christians. And I have been doing this most of my adult life. Biblical counseling is what you may understand it as, uh, but that's a small portion of what we do. Uh, we are in a training, a training ministry, and so we, help, we try to come alongside local churches. I like what Rick said, that we provide counseling, but it's kind of a thing that's kind of a small thing that's over on the side because it's not a thing that we try to wave a big flag because we are very much local church people. We have a high view of the local church and believe that discipleship care should happen within the context of the local church primarily. And so anything that we can do to help the local church to be a better local church, that's the heart of our ministry, not counseling on the side. If we can serve you, please let us know. You can go to our website, and uh, we do have forums. We interact with people. If you have questions you want to ask, uh, you can do that. Uh, There's no charge for that. You can ask whatever questions that you want. Our ministry is underwritten by people who believe uh, in what we do, who like what we do, and we, we call them supporting members, and they support us for $5 a month or, or $500 a month. And uh, if you're interested in doing that, you can do that. And that's all I'm going to say about that because it's awkward for me to say that. But if you want to, you can. I would encourage you, though, if you haven't uh, looked, we have a couple of, of books, and I just want to mention them. If you ever had any suffering in your life, <laughs> uh, which I know you have, uh, I have a book called Suffering Well. It is autobiographical in a, in a sense. It's the story of Job, as I have weaved my life into the story of Job, and I wrote this book. As God saw fit to allow me to enter into the crucible of suffering on April the 8th, 1988. And because of his kindness to me to allow me to go through these horrendous events in my life, uh, which are articulated in this book, he taught me a thing or two, and I, I promised the Lord 30 years ago that I would put that thing or two into some kind of print, and so thus I have, and it's in this book. It's a play on words, how to suffer well. We have no option other than suffering, and so you have to decide, do you want to suffer well or do you want to suffer poorly? And so this book helps you to, I hope it will help you to learn how to suffer well. The subtitle is How to Steward God's Most Feared Blessing. Job said in 325, the thing that I have feared has come upon me. And the thing that we fear does come upon us at some point in our lives, and that is suffering. And, and so I subtitled it that way. Uh, you, there's a few more of these left. Uh, they do, as I told everyone else, they normally sell for $500. But you can get them for $12. We're giving you the church rates. And so I would encourage you to get one today because they will go up at 12.05. <laughs> In fact, you may want to leave now <laughs> and come back. It won't bother me if you leave, if you're getting a book. If you leave for other reasons, it will bother me. This book here is called Change Me. It's the ultimate life change handbook. And what I did with this book is... I took our best resources from our ministry and put them in a book. There are 30, 31, 32 chapters here, something like that. 
And uh, th this book was not written to be a, a one-and-done one book. The purpose of this book is to read it like you would read a systematic theology book, for example. You would pull it down and, and read it often. And so if you want to uh, read something on communication, you would turn to those chapters. If you want to read something on repentance, you would turn to those chapters. If you want to read something on marriage, you would turn to those chapters. You can read it from cover to cover, and I would highly recommend that. But I would also recommend that you don't put it on your shelf and never read it again. Uh, the intent of the book is to use it often. For those of you who have been here through these other meetings, you know that I, I draw out virtually everything that I say. I won't be doing that here. We're changing gears here. I will be preaching. But I draw out uh, my concepts that I communicate, and a lot of those graphics are in this book. And so you can, in fact, you'll see some of the graphics that you've seen this weekend. And so I would encourage you to get this book. If you're interested in learning how to suffer well, please. If you're interested in changing, please uh, you know, get, get these uh, two books. Let us know how we can serve you. I would appreciate that even after we are gone. And so if you want to reach out to me, you can do that you know, through our ministry. And we're as easy to access as the Internet. I appreciate Rick saying in Sunday School Hour that they're going to edit the, my, my talks this week, which makes me very comfortable. I, needed, I need to be edited. Uh, I'm not a normal speaker, and, and so I just don't stand up and speak from A to Z, and, and then you just, boom, put it out on the Internet. That would not be wise. It would be better to edit me. There's things you want to edit. And so when you said that, I was just so encouraged. And for the... <laughs> What did he say? I didn't hear him. That's not what he meant. That you needed to be edited. He said that's not what he meant. Oh. Okay. <laughs> Can you edit me? <laughs> no, we'll take, we'll take all of it. That was actually improper grammar. Can you edit me? Yes, of course you can. Will you edit me? <laughs> all right. Well, enough of that. So it seems like the way that y'all do things is that you read the scripture that you're going to teach from in the morning. I was listening to Sheldon read the passage of scripture and I thought, this is how tired I am. I thought, how coincidental. He's reading the very passage that I'm speaking from. <laughs> he was reading Hebrews chapter 10 and I thought, this is great, man. Like, Lord, thank you for what you're doing here. I know that you want me to speak on this text here because... Sheldon, of all the scriptures that he can pick out of the Bible, he picked Hebrews chapter 10. And so I felt so affirmed. And then a little bit later, it kind of dawned on me. I think that's what they do here. Um, anyway, I'm going to live in my delusion and um, just believe that the Lord wants me to speak on this passage here. And so if you would open your Bible, which I assume it's already open since you know where I'm going, even though I don't know where I'm going... It's Hebrews chapter 10. I want to look at uh, verses, uh, and I'll get there in a moment. I'll do a long ramp up, but uh, verses, chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. And I hope that by the time that we're done, that you are sufficiently irritated, because that's what that passage says you should be. And I hope that you're all irritating people. And if you're not an irritating person, you need to get on with it. You need to learn how to be an irritating person. Uh, all Christians should be irritating. And this passage clearly communicates that. And if you're not an irritating person, then you need to repent and become irritating. And we'll get there in a moment. There's a little bit of a teaser for this passage. The title of the sermon is, 
ministering to one another should be supreme. I have been teaching this entire week uh, in on uh, how to do soul care more effectively within the local church. And that is my heart desire. Sanctification is the thing that, that we focus on as a ministry to help Christians to become better Christians. And so that has been uh, the, the flavor that we have been talking about uh, this weekend. How to be better husbands, how to be better wives, better parents, better children, better Christians to each other. And so I want to bring all this down into this sermon and uh, put a bow on it. And I hope this sermon will do that. Ministering to one another should be supreme. There's over 31 another's in the New Testament and it's your responsibility as, as members of this local body to be faithfully and consistently and practically one anothering with each other. You should be helping each other to grow up in knowledge uh, of Jesus Christ. We want to grow up in his truth and be transformed into his image. Let me begin by asking you a, a couple of questions just to get it going. And then at each point, I have three points for you this morning. And after each point, I will ask you some specific questions for application. It is very important for us that we not only hear God's word, but we know how to practically apply God's word to our lives. And that is one of the biggest breakdowns within the Christian community. We love knowledge. We love hearing God's word. And sometimes we just end up stacking knowledge on top of knowledge. But we don't know how to connect the knowledge to our lives practically in our living rooms where we live in our day-to-day -day lives. And so my desire here is I don't want to just add to your knowledge. If I just add to your knowledge and you cannot practically apply what you have heard, then you, you can become arrogant, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 8, 2, that knowledge can puff up. And so we want to be more than hearers of the word, as James said in chapter 1, that we want to be doers of the word also. And so for us, it is a two-part uh, issue here. We want to hear God's word and then we want to be able to, to practically apply we want to connect what we're hearing into the life that I'm living on Tuesday morning or Friday night. And so at the end of each point, I will give you some questions that I hope that will help you to reflect and think about what you are hearing. And, and for bonus points, you can go home and talk to your spouse, your children, talk to your friend about this. And, and that would be wonderful if you would take this outside of this building here and begin to... Uh, implement into your day-to-day -day lives, especially tonight and tomorrow. But let me ask you this. Have you ever been hurt by someone? We don't need testimony. Oh, we have a word here. We have a testimony. We want to, and I'm just, I'm just, he raised his hand. Yes, you, you are listening. Thank you so much uh, for raising your hand. Um, and the others of you who didn't raise your hand, uh, I, I know that you have been hurt as well. Have you ever been annoyed by someone? Maybe you're being annoyed now, <laughs> and I do apologize. What about being disappointed or put out by the actions of another person? I know that my questions that I'm asking you are silly questions because I know you have been hurt by someone. I know that you have been disappointed by someone, put out. I know that you have been annoyed. It happens to all of us. It doesn't matter where you go. It doesn't matter where you live. Conflict will always be part of your lives. You can even try to completely isolate yourself from all of humanity. But guess what? 
you will still be annoyed. James says in James chapter 4 that there is a war within us. And even if you did try, to, if you successfully pulled, pulled off, isolating from every human on the planet, you will still be an annoyed person because you will be annoyed with yourself. And so it is not even reasonable to, live, to think that you can live in a world without being disappointed by other people. It's one of the reasons that has given rise to social media. A lot of people like social media because they can live in, in cyberspace. This is a false intimacy that we create called social media. It's not a real world, but it's a world that we create because some of us have been so hurt by so many real people that we create this world and we can have a Facebook life and we can have our community on Facebook because they will not hurt us. And if they do hurt us, all I have to do is and I unfriend them. These are cyber relationships, and at best, on their best day, those are partial relationships. They are not real relationships. These are real relationships where you really annoy each other, and it's, a, it's really hard. You know, maybe we need little stickers like on our forehead that says friend and unfriend. And you can go up to your friend and just go, bing, I unfriend you. But we can do that in cyberspace. Even our internet ministry that God has given us. I am well aware that I'm working within the limitations of relationship. Even as we help people all over the world, I understand the limitations of what we are doing. You know, Proverbs talks about a person who comes and states their case, which happens so often, an individual, an individual within a marriage will come and state their case, and I'm only listening to one side of the story. I, I, I struggle with what we do in that way because I understand that it is limiting in what we do because I'm not a fly on the wall. I'm not in their real life. I do not know the real story. I only know the story that is presented to me. I haven't met their dog. I haven't heard their children yelling. I don't know what the relationship is like on Tuesday night. I just hear a story. And we all come from our, from our version of truth. As you know, there are three truths, yours, mine, and God's, and only God's is correct. And so the, the ministry that we have, as much as I love it, and I do love what I do, I am the happiest person in this room, and I will challenge you on that. And if you want to out-happy me, you can talk to me after the sermon, and we'll see who's happier. But I am absolutely content in what I'm doing, but I am very, very much aware that what I do is limiting because at the end of the day, uh, it is a cyber, it's internet advice. It is the redemptive use of technology, but it is, it is internet advice. It cannot replace this. Facebook cannot replace this. And even counseling. I've been doing counseling for a hundred years. I have counseled more people than I can imagine. There's not a thing that you can tell me that I haven't heard. I've counseled everything and the kitchen sink, which is a saying from where I'm from. I've heard all the stories. But counseling is a limited context. Counseling is an artificial season where two people come together to share their problems. And when two people get in an argument in a counseling session, I do math. I multiply it by 10. 
by whatever this friction is in this counseling session is 10 times worse in their home. When they come to me, they put their best foot forward, as ugly as that foot may be, but I know the other foot is a lot worse than that foot. And I cannot live, live in their world. They have 168 hours in their week, and they only meet with me for two. And so I'm working from a limitation because I don't do life with them. And so whether it's a social media relationship or our internet ministry that we have or a counseling relationship, all of those are limited relationships. And by the way, some people like that. Some people prefer that over the real world. The unwilling to change husband does not want anyone entering into his real world, so he reluctantly comes to counseling. Or you have the person who has been hurt so often that she's afraid of letting people into her world, so she creates distance in cyberspace. And so she has this false intimacy. Some people like that. Some people prefer these limited intimate or false intimate relationships because it's safe. There are elements of intimacy in these things that I have described, but the intimacy is mostly false. And the limitations circumvent the help that these people could receive because the essential elements of relationship are missing. The essential elements like transparency, honesty, vulnerability, Unmask truth, and you're not entirely accessible. Paul, uh, the Hebrew writer, has called us to a new and living way. And we see that new and living way in chapter 10. Look at the text here. We're going to divide it in half in two parts. The first part, chapter 10, in verses 19 through 23. The Hebrew writer says, Therefore, brothers... Since we have confidence, listen to that word, feel that word. Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. Why do we have this confidence? Because of the blood of Jesus. This new and living way that Jesus has opened up for us through the curtain as he has given us a visual. You remember in Exodus 25 verse 8, the Lord told Moses, build a tabernacle so that I may dwell with my people. And then in John 1, Jesus came and he tabernacled with us. And now Jesus has entered into that tabernacle and he has gone through the curtain through his flesh, that is. And since we have, because you have this great high priest over the house of God, feel the confidence of this writer here. Because you have this confidence, let us draw near. Let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast the confession of our faith. You see what he is calling us to. We don't waver. We have full assurance. We are confident, not because of what we have done, but because of his works, because of his righteousness, because of his death, because of his entering through the curtain and the sprinkling of his blood on the mercy seat. Let us hold fast the, co the confession of our faith without wavering. This is who we are. This is who we are because of Christ. For it is he who promised. It is he 
who is faithful. The Bible calls you and me to live differently from superficial counseling relationships. The Bible calls us to live differently than cyber relationships. The Bible calls us to live intentionally and intrusive in people's lives so Jesus can transform both you and me. Though you have all the resources that you need to be a better relationship builder, there can be a timidity about appropriating these things. And I think that's one of the reasons the writer is writing so strongly and so boldly. He wants us to be infused with confidence because of the timidity. You remember Adam when he sinned? What did he do? He grabbed him some fig leaves and covered himself up. And so we come to our church meetings every Sunday morning hiding behind our fig leaves because of the shame and the guilt that we feel in our lives. And we don't want anyone to look behind our curtain. We don't want anyone to look and see the reality of who we are. The Hebrew writer says, let us draw near with confidence and full assurance of faith because it is Jesus who penetrated it is Jesus who sprinkled his blood and he is calling us to have more in-depth biblical relationships and we are to enjoy them but we must ask a question false intimacy these false relationships that we build begs us to ask a question where do you begin to build a better relationship You do that within God's family, but that's not where it starts. You do not build a relationship with another human being first. That's not where relationship building begins, and that's what this text is teaching. The relationships that you build with each other, they began by your own relationship with God Almighty your own personal relationship with Jesus Christ. You see, your ability to persevere with other people, and don't we need ability to persevere with other people because we have been annoyed by other people, we have been disappointed by other people, we have been hurt by other people. Therefore, you just don't enter into a relationship without a prerequisite relationship, which is what this text is teaching. Your ability to persevere with others is tied directly to your relationship with God and how you appropriate that relationship to your life. A transformative relationship with the Lord will give you what you need to interact with any person regardless of how challenging that person may be. Jesus, you could used as a metaphor like an anchor Jesus is an anchor that that stabilizes you so when these irritating relationships come in your life you will be stabilized by the the confidence that we see in this text 19 to 23 in chapter 10 Jesus is the one that stabilizes us and if we don't have a stabilized relationship with Christ the people who come into our world we will be like a wave that is moving upon the sea, tossed in every way. 
And so a key passage in understanding how to have strong biblical relationships is Hebrews, 19, uh, Hebrews chapter 10, 19 through 25. And in the first part of this passage, as I've been speaking on, the writer is talking about how to have the right kind of life with Christ, which motivates and empowers you to have the right kind of life with other people. Let me give you a synopsis of 19 to 23 in chapter 10. Here's a good synopsis. Harmonic living with others is proportional to the appropriation of Christ into your life. Harmonic living with others is proportional to the appropriation of Christ into your life. If you have appropriately, by the way, if you want my notes here, I'll, I'll send them to you, okay? The conference price is $300, but I will give them to you for nothing. You just have to ask for them. Harmonic living with others is proportional to the appropriation of Christ into your life. If you are appropriately applying the gospel, Christ, to your life, you will be ready to practically live it out in a community, which is the second part of the passage. And this is the application part of the passage that I really want to get into now. But I did not want to just blow through this preface, which is 19 through 23, because it is imperative that we understand that if you have a weak or anemic or insufficient relationship with Jesus Christ, you can't have good, stable relationships in your world because he is the anchor. And so the writer is saying, let us be confident because of what he has done. Let's look at verses 24 and 25 now. I want you to notice three words, four actually. The word consider, the word stir up, this is my outline, and the word encouraging. The writer says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together is the habit of some, but encouraging, my last word, encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Before you can have a right relationship with another person, the first thing you have to do is to consider them. The writer says, let us consider. Let us consider the word consider in this text means to be a student of this person. Your goal is to exegete this person. Exegete is a, a Bible word. It, it, means, it means raking leaves. It, it's like you, you, you look at a, a verse or a word in, in the Bible and you want to rake down to the bottom of it all to see what the word means. And so it's like raking leaves. And so you just start raking and raking and raking and you get down to the bottom of it all. So that you understand the word. And so I want to consider, I want to consider Chris. You're the one I have picked out today. So. <laughs> You're lucky. We're Christians. Sovereign luck. <laughs> Sovereign luck. That makes it sound better. I want to consider Chris. And, and before I can help Chris, 
Before I can be any kind of a blessing in Chris's life, I have to consider him. I have to think about Chris. I have to exegete Chris. I have to unpack Chris. I need to know Chris through and through. You can't help a person if you don't know them. It's really the heart of the gospel. Jesus was, you know, the gospel is about a person going, coming from his place to our place and to enter into our lives and to take on flesh as Jesus did as our first missionary. And he came to our world and became like us. And that's why he, 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 he's a sympathizing savior as we read in Hebrews chapter 4 and verses 15, 16. That Jesus understands us. He, he gets us. In John chapter 2 verses uh, 24 and 25 it's, it says something like this as John was reflecting on Jesus's life uh, many decades later he was talking about this scene in John 2 that begins in verse 18 goes down through 25 and and Jesus was having this relationship with the Pharisees and the Pharisees were asking him about this temple that they were building and Jesus said you destroy this temple and and I would build it in three days and they didn't understand what Jesus was talking about and John reflecting on that moment many decades later and writing this story in in the book of John and and John says this about Jesus in verses 24 and 25 he said nobody needed to tell Jesus about man because he knew what was in man and the reason that Jesus is such a helpful person in our lives is because he knows what's in man and God has given us our psychology book, the Bible, psyche, logos, psyche, soul, logos, word. The Bible is the word concerning the soul. We have the perfect psychology book. In Genesis 2, verse number 7, it says that the Lord God formed man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils, and man became a living soul. God created the soul. And then in 2 Timothy 3.16, God breathed out again and gave us his word. God gave us his word. Now we have the word concerning the soul. The most perfect psychology book you will ever read is right here. It's called, God, it's called God's word. The author of the soul is the author of the word concerning the soul. And the more you know about this book, the more you'll know what is in man and we can be like Jesus and so we want to study God's word so we can exegete each other so we can bring appropriate soul care to each other and the writer is saying here let us consider let us consider now the way that I would consider Chris would be different than the way I would consider Grace because she's different from Chris and so we want to consider each other before you can have a right relationship with another person, you must first consider the other person. All good Christian disciples know and practice this method of relationship building. Even while the other person is talking, you are actively listening to what they are saying. You are hearing what they are not saying. You are discerning their presuppositions, their worldviews, their categories, their interpretive grids. You are trying to discern their shaping influences because you love them. You want to consider them before you speak to them. You want to know them as much as you can know them in our finiteness through and through. That's how Jesus listened to people. 
He wanted to fully know them so he could speak the true truth in love. You cannot help a person if you have not spent time adequately considering them. A healthy Christian community here is always considering each other. God has called you to consider how to help other people so that they can be a better reflection of Jesus Christ. That's point number one. Here's some application questions I want you to think about. Do you have people in your life who think about you? Do you know? Do you have people in your life who think about you? Not too many. I don't either. Do you have people in your life who have given you permission to speak into their lives? This would be a great relationship if, if Chris and I, if we were here and we had this kind of relationship as we're building. It's like, I want to give you permission to speak into my life. Chris, I give you permission to speak into my life. I want you to speak into my life. Do you give people permission? I, I want you to go up to someone and say, and maybe it's your spouse. Now, now Lucia, has, Lucia considers me. Of course, she has a vested interest in considering me. If I were married to me, I'd consider me too. It's like, wow. And so she does consider me. But I've also given her permission to consider me. I told her a long time ago that if you just rubber stamp what I say, you're really not needed. I need someone who has an alternate opinion. I need somebody. We, we'll cover it later. I'll, I'll just meet you out here. Okay. Yeah. No, we'll, we'll either laugh or cry. You're laughing now. Uh, I told her many years, you, you see, here, here, here's, how, here's how marriage is, is that uh, Adam was ribless. Adam was ribless. Eve was a rib. A a Adam was, he had a missing piece. And Eve was the missing piece. Now, of course, Eve had a missing piece. And she needed Adam. And so Eve brought something to the table that, that Adam didn't have. And Adam brought something to the table that Eve didn't have. Lucia, <laughs> I asked Sheldon on, on the way over. I said, Sheldon, have you noticed that Lucia and I are different? <laughs> uh, Sheldon needs training and counseling. Uh, let me give you a counseling 101 class right here. It's just really quick. Whenever somebody says something to you, you maintain game face. <laughs> that is important counseling technique. You maintain game face. When somebody tells you something weird, you don't go. <laughs> and so, we've got some work to do, brother. <laughs> we need more wax on and wax off. <laughs> I said, Sheldon, have you noticed that Lucia and I are a little bit different? Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's like, what's... We are different. 
And I thank God that we're different. I don't want to marry a clone. That'd be a mess. My mother-in-law didn't want me to marry Lucia. And that's like the only thing we agreed on. I told her, I, I, I told her, I said, if I came up to my door and wanted to marry me, I wouldn't marry me. And so I totally get it. And the fact that Lucia married me in a moment of insanity or whatever it was, we got engaged on top of the Empire State Building on uh, Ju uh, December the 21st at 7 p.m. in 1986. The reason we did that, there was two reasons we did that. One, if she said no, I was going to throw her off. And then two, the reason, and, and this is, for, uh, the, that part might, may or may not be true, but this next part, <laughs> this next part is true. I asked her to marry me on December 21st because it's the shortest day of the year. And if she said no, that's the shortest day of the year. And every time December 21st comes around, it's just the shortest day of the year, and I can get over it quicker than any other day. I wasn't going to ask her to marry me on June the 21st. I mean, that'd be terrible if she had said no. That day so long. But now she said, yeah, which ruined the whole thing. Because now she said, yeah, that day's so short. <laughs> and I don't get to enjoy it as long as other days. But Lucia brings something to the table that I don't have. And so her opinion is valuable. And what she has to say is valuable. She adds to. She doesn't uh, rubber stamp what I say. And that's so invaluable to me because she has opinions, life, experience. She's a Yankee. Yeah. Where's Madeline? There she is. You'll have to ask her. That's a Sunday school joke. I'm a southern boy. Imagine how wonderful we are. The mingling of north and south, male and female, brilliance and me and... Beauty and me. And we're awesome. If we were both drop-dead gorgeous and both intellectual and both from the north, how terrible would that be? Do you have people in your life who have given you permission to speak into your lives? Question number three, are you doing life with other individuals who are committed to this kind of one anothering? Point number one, let us practically consider others. Point number two, let us practically confront others. The word stir up can be translated in this text, spur, provoke, or even irritate. The word stir up in this text can be translated as irritate. The idea with irritating is not a sinful one, obviously, according to the context that the Hebrew writer is writing. There's no way that you can read sinful irritation into this text. It is a command that means you are intentionally intrusive in other people's lives. Because the truth is, if somebody is intentionally intrusive in your life, it will feel like an irritation because they will be jostling you. They will be jiggling you. And so, Chris, I want to be an irritant in your life. How, I, how, how have I been doing this entire weekend? Have, have I been an irritant? You've been an instrument of <laughs> he said you are drop dead gorgeous and I've enjoyed looking at you though that was an awkward thing for you to say but I appreciate it 
No, what he said is that you have been an instrument of grace in his life. That's the Sunday school thing, too, uh, that we were talking in Sunday school. I'm wanting y'all to feel guilted about missing Sunday school. <laughs> the idea of irritating is not a sinful one. It's a command to be intentionally intrusive into each other's lives. If you have people around you who are not allowed to disagree with you, then you will not grow. You will not grow. And that's why it is imperative. And that is why I told Lucia I didn't marry a clone. I married a unique individual with unique gifting and a unique relationship with God that I don't have, that I can't have because I'm not you. Therefore, you need to export that relationship that you have with God to me. And it's going to be different than my relationship with God. And it's going to make me a richer man. If you are too touchy, too insecure, too self-important, too image-conscious, too self-righteous, you're heading towards spiritual death. The sins that can most destroy you are the ones you cannot see. The most dangerous part about our sin problem is our blindness to our blindness. The deceitfulness of sin causes us to minimize and to rationalize and to justify and not even admit our sin. The mark of mature Christian community is people who do not want to be blind to their sin. This kind of authenticity requires friends who are willing to go beneath the surface of our lives. And that's where it gets irritating. That's where we are provoking one another in love. We need to carefully consider others, point number one. We need to practically confront others. Let us stir each other up like a snow globe. Shake it up and get underneath our lives so that we can help each other. Here's a few questions to think about. Have you given your friends permission to disagree with you? Have you given your spouse permission to disagree with you? Have you given your children, if they are old enough? We, we have been training our children all their lives to disagree with us. I don't want my children to, to say uh, what we say and, and, and to give the expected answers. I was counseling a lady many years ago. She was 17, 18 years old. And uh, I asked her, uh, I asked her, I said, um, do you, oh, I said, do you love God? She said, yes. And I said, why do you love God? She said, because I first loved, because he first loved me. I said, stop it. Stop it. No more of that Bible stuff. Don't give me the Bible. I'm not interested in the Bible. I don't want to know what the Bible says. I want to know what you say. And she looked at me and she said, are you for real? I said, yeah, I'm for real. Don't give me them Sunday school answers. Do you love God? Yes, I love God. Why do you love God? Because he first loved me. Gag. Stop it. What do you really think? She said, Really? I said, yeah. She said, I'm angry with God. I said, yes! Thank you! Don't give me what, I, what you think I want to hear. If you ask my children what I want for Christmas, this is what they will tell you. They will quote 3 John verse 4. 
I find no greater joy than to know that my children are walking in truth. That's what I want for Christmas. If you ask them what I want for my birthday, they'll, in fact, they said this a, a week or so ago, was talking about Christmas list, and said, well, what does Daddy want? And, and two of my children said in unison, I find no greater joy that my children are walking in truth. <laughs> That's what I want. I want my children to tell me their truth, whatever their truth is. I don't want to create a culture in our home where it's so strong and domineering that our, our children are, are saluting the flag, or as we say, they, they are, are, when you tell the child to sit down, he's sitting down, but he's standing, he's standing up on the inside. He's sitting down on the outside, but he's standing up on the inside. Have you given your friends permission to disagree with you? You see, when that lady told me that she was angry with the Lord, the why that was so beneficial because it gave us a starting point. You can't talk to someone if they're lying to you. And so I wasn't rebuking her about what she said. I was grateful about what she said because she told the truth and now I can meet her where she is. If I would have let her hang on to that old Bible stuff... Uh, well, because he first loved me. I, I, couldn't, we couldn't, I couldn't help her that way because she was lying. Can your friends disagree with you without a sinful reaction from you? When Lucia and I started working through these ideas many, many years ago, uh, the way that we started this way, and maybe this is the way that you need to start. I went to Lucia and I said, Lucia, if I promise that I will not respond sinfully to you. If I promise that I will not react in any uh, unkind manner, if I promise that I will not add but into whatever you say, if I promise not to be defensive, if I promise that I will listen to you and you can say absolutely anything that you want to say, and I promise that I will not hold this against you at any time from this point forward, if I make all of these promises to you, would you tell me what you think about me? Now that took a lot of trust on her part to believe that I was telling the truth, and she did. It changed everything. She has a mind. And I want her to disagree without my sinful reactions. The question was, can your friends disagree with you without sinful reactions from you? Question number three, are you willing to lovingly disagree with your friends for their good and God's glory? Can someone come up to you and disagree with you because it's for your good, their good? And for God's glory. Question four, do you live in a community where intentional, intrusive living is the norm? Do you have irritating people in your life? The Hebrew writer said, spur one another on to love and good works. Point number one, we should be practically considering each other. Point number two, we should be practically confronting each other. And then finally, in closing, the two favorite words <laughs> of every congregation. In closing, point number three, practically comforting others. The Greek word in this text, encourage, comforting, is parakaleo, which means to come alongside another person. 
coming alongside another person, it's crucial in this text. It's kind of obvious in this text because while you are confronting someone, while you are correcting someone, while you're being that irritant to another individual, the context of spurring them on to loving good works, it is imperative that they know that you are for them. In air quotes here, the for them aspect of any relationship is at the heart of the gospel. Paul said this in Romans 8.31, If God is for you, who can be against you? And we want to imitate that gospel aspect in our relationships. We want to be for other people. And if you're going to correct another person, that other person needs to know that you're absolutely in totality that you are for them. The main reason any Christian is willing to receive the corrective care of the Lord is because he knows God is for them. It is unwise, it is unbiblical, it is unkind to correct any person that you are not for. It doesn't mean that you're for their sin. It means that you are for them. If you do not get this right in your heart and in your delivery, your corrective care may come across as punitive rather than redemptive. The most important practice in bringing restorative corrective care, obviously, is prayer. If you've not spent time praying for the person, about the person, then your correction of the person will have a sinful edge to it. And in such cases, your care will come across as harsh or unkind. If you have not spent time before the Father bringing the annoying people in your world, in your life, to Him while pleading with Him to adjust your attitudes, to adjust your thoughts, your words, your actions toward them, you will not build them up. You will tear them down when you speak to them. A few questions to think about. How often do you pray for those who you need to correct. Question two, do, do those you biblically irritate, do they feel your affection for them? I will ask, I've I asked this in a couple of contexts. One of the contexts is with my children. When I correct my children, I will ask them on occasion, how did that feel? Uh, one of the standard questions that we do ask each other is, what do you experience more from me? Do you experience more of my encouragement, my affirmation, or do you experience more of my discouragement and, and my disappointment? In the other context well, I, I, where I would ask this question is in a counseling con uh, context. Because I know in a counseling context, which is shrunken down to a couple of hours, which is unfortunate, I don't care for that, but that's what we have. And I know within that context, there could be some difficult things that's said to the other person. And I haven't built an effective relational bridge to carry that truth over. And if you haven't built a relational bridge to carry the harder truths of life over to another person, then that truth will collapse on both of you. And so in a, a counseling situation, it is very difficult to build a relational bridge to that person so that when I correct that person, they know that I am for them, I care for them. It's hard to do in a shrunken down counseling situation, which is unfortunate. It's one of the reasons I don't care for that context so much. It's one of the reasons that I love the, the local church so much is because you can build relationally within a local church in multiple contexts. You can build those relational bridge. It's one of the reasons I love small talk. 
Because, and I'm an introvert by nature, by the way, I have to work at this, was having this conversation as well. Uh, I'm a a shy person by nature. I'm an introvert by nature. Uh, I I, I don't care for talking. It's not my thing. I can live my life in the corner of a room with a book. I don't need people. Uh, That's the way I've always been in my life. The Lord has taught me to love people, and he's teaching me to communicate. Lucia is the one that's social. I told Lucia when we, when we first got married, I said, you're in charge of the social calendar because if I'm in charge of the social calendar, we won't go anywhere. We'll stay home for 50 years. <laughs> but I also told her, and this is true. You can ask, it's a true story. And I also told her, I mean, it's, why should I say this is true? It's like I'm preaching. <clears throat> but anyway, I also told her that, but if we do go somewhere, uh, I'm going to be that knot on the log that's sitting over there in the corner. And you're going to be the one that's out there doing Lucia's stuff. And it's not going to be pleasant for you. And as we were having this discussion this morning, uh, uh, coming up over with Sheldon, uh, Lucia said, it wasn't pleasant. <laughs> as I said last night at the dinner that we were having, Lucia, was, Lucia uh, her primary purpose in my life was to domesticate me. And one of the ways that she has helped to domesticate me is to help me to learn how to be social because talking is not a natural thing for me. This is work for me. This is work. If I'm talking to you, I'm working because it's easier for me to be quiet. My friends are talkers. If I, if I, if I happen to come up against a non-talker in a church setting like this, I mean, we run through our three questions and we stare at each other's shoes. And it's just, this is what we're going to do. It's like, oh boy, <laughs> seven minutes. <laughs> Hope the talker shows up because I got nothing for you, man. It takes a lot of work. How often do you pray for those who you need to correct? Do, you, do those who biblically irritate you feel your affection for them? Could those, could those you bring correction to make a case for how you are for them? And so in a counseling situation, I will ask counselees on occasion, when I corrected you, how did that feel? How did that come across to you? And there have been more than one occasion in a counseling situation where I have had to ask the counselee to forgive me because of my impatience with them or my harshness to them. Christian counseling is neither Christian nor counseling if it is done without tears. And if you don't have compassion for the person that you are correcting, then you need to get your heart right with God before you correct that person. But I have corrected people in my life without that compassion, and I have had to go to them and ask them for forgiveness. You cannot draw near to God on your own. You can do a lot of things by yourself, but sanctification is not one of them. You cannot do sanctification on your own. You might do a thousand other things by yourself, but sanctification is not on that list. You need a community to spur you on to change. The author of Hebrews knew the dire straits that his readers were in, which is why he used this strong language to motivate them toward love and good works. They are dying and they're being persecuted for their faith. People were murdering them. And that's why he's so strong in his language here. Draw near with confidence and spur one another on. You've got to be irritating each other in in the love of God so that you can spur one another on and encouraging them so you can be transformed because you are dying. 
His twofold aim in this text was to elevate the power of the gospel, which is what verses 19 through 23 do, while giving them practical instruction on how to mobilize a community to strengthen each other. If you are not accessing the community of faith while seeking to have that community know you the way that you really need to be known, your sanctification is in danger of shipwrecking. There is no biblical argument otherwise. We all have been hurt by people, especially Christians. But this reality about our fallenness, it doesn't negate the truth of this passage or the need for total immersive body ministry. I need people in my life who are willing to love me enough to bring corrective care to me. I am aware that they will love me imperfectly, which is why I must know that they are for me. Don't elevate a person's correction to the place that they can't even hit themselves. Nobody will ever correct you perfectly. An imperfect person cannot correct an imperfect person perfectly. There will always be elements of imperfection in their correction. I'm not making a case for imperfection. I'm just stating a reality that imperfect people can't do it perfectly. And sometimes what we do, you know, Lucia is 95% right on her correction, but she's 5% wrong. And then what I don't want to do is to focus on the 5% wrong. Well, you didn't get this right and this right, even though she's 95% on what she said was right. Expect people to correct you imperfectly and you won't be disappointed. And then within that imperfect correction, you will find something that you can learn and grow. We all have been hurt by other people. I can receive their imperfect care if I have demonstrated through their comforting encouragement that they're on my side. I'm not asking my friends to agree with me. I'm not asking my friends to turn a blind eye to my sin. I'm not asking my friends to coddle me. I'm asking my friends to love God enough to where they will be motivated to be used by Him to speak into my life, especially in areas where I am self-deceived. Here's your final questions. I will pray and we will be done. Do you live in this kind of community? Do you have people within this body that you're doing this kind of immersive, intrusive community together? Question two, what do you need to do to either create or sustain this sort of community? Question three, what does being hurt by others, how does being hurt by others hinder you from engaging others in a real community? You want to guard against cynicism those of us who have been hurt so often can become cynics. A cynic is, a, is, is a, a person who lives with false intimacy. A cynic is a person who is in the world but not in the world. In the church but not in the church. And if you could see them on the inside, they're sitting here with their arms crossed and they're looking over the top of their glasses and they're judging everything that you do and they're criticizing everything that you do because they're cynics. The cynic questions the active goodness of God in their lives. They have been hurt one too many times. And now rather than engaging the community of faith, they just, they're here but they're not here. Living in that false intimacy within the body. The Christian is not the cynic. The Christian is feisty. 
The Christian believes in the active goodness of God. They do not give in to cynicism, that false intimacy of being in the church, but not really in the church. Will you find someone to help you work through your disappointments so you can participate in a loving, intrusive community? The title of this sermon, Ministering to One Another, should be supreme. The text is Hebrews 10, verses 19 through 25. And then my strongest appeal would be to you to find someone. Go to that person and say, I want to build this kind of life with you. And from that, we want to build out like a a rock dropped in a pond. And it just encompasses the full body life of this church. May we pray.